0: I'm Dave Laird. I'm Matt Booker.
1: And I'm Robin O'Neill. Prepare to get your ear holes attacked by the sweet sounds of the great concavity. Uh-oh.
0: Is that that's, okay? Robin, that's that's great. Um, <laughs> Love it. So as you can hear, we, we have a guest this week on The Great Concavity, and we are super psyched to welcome onto the show visual artist Robin O'Neill. Robin, <laughs> thank you for coming on the show.
1: It's my pleasure. No problem. Thank you guys <laughs> Thanks, for Robin. having me and for using my image.
0: Yeah, and also it's cool because we get to thank you in person for you allowing us to use that. So every episode we thank you, and now it's like we get to say it in person, sort of, in, in, as in-person as Skype is, so, <laughs> you so don't thank have, you, Robin. Yeah,
1: no, my pleasure. You don't have to thank me every time, by the way, but I appreciate that you do. Now I'm going to yeah, expect cool. it from here until the end of the podcast.
0: Yeah, yeah, oh, naturally.
2: Well, you know, when Dave and I were talking about an image for the, for the podcast for Great Concavity, I had no idea what we would do outside of just like a map. And literally, like, the first thing he showed me was one of your drawings. And I was like, that's it. That's perfect. I don't know if we'll be able to get it, but I, I love it so much.
1: <laughs> oh, that makes me so happy. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. That seems to be my most reproduced image. It seems to... And you know what's funny about it is that image in particular, writers really love that image. So it's... it's uh, mm. I, w- I don't want to say it didn't come as a surprise, but it is. it does seem to hit you guys <laughs> the hardest. So that makes me really happy.
2: Well, that's interesting because it's really not that abstract. You know, it's pretty straightforward of a guy <laughs> sort of balancing over this great chasm, you know.
0: Yeah, it's like a concavity, actually. So thematically, it works really well.
1: Oh, that's why you chose it. See, I didn't even think well, about that. Sort of. Yeah, that, <laughs> that makes sense.
0: Also, it's like one of my favorite images in the history of art. So it was pretty easy, like first choice. When I wow. Thought
1: of it. Thank you, Dave. You're making me feel good. And by <laughs> by the way, in case, it's actually up right now and it never is because drawings can't be up at museums for very long because they're so susceptible to light damage. So yeah, oh, I don't yeah. know. I mean, Dave, you probably won't be in Texas anytime soon, but Matt and any of our uh, Texas friends it's it's up at the Modern Art Museum in Fort Worth right now through January, I think. So wow. uh, I just wanted to say that because no one ever gets to see that drawing in real life. And it's huge. I don't know if you guys know it, but it's like 14 feet by seven or eight feet tall. So it's yeah. a massive drawing.
0: I know. I'm, I, I'm dying to see it in real life. I was actually going to ask you, does someone own it? Like, did someone buy it from you or is it circulating in, in g- galleries and stuff like that?
1: yeah luckily that museum in fort worth bought it so the modern owns it which is the ideal situation that was kind of my dream place Mm. for it and it ended up working out years after i showed it in a gallery so i was patient and it ended up going where it needed to go so i'm really happy about that so you'll get a chance to see it at some point for sure
2: oh i'm going i'll be up there and my mom lives north of fort worth so i I'll go through there in the next couple months for sure and stop and go in there. I, I, that's great. I will be able to see it. That like I say that's kind of my home turf.
1: Yeah, me too.
0: Matt, you should take a picture of yourself with it when you're there because <laughs> the Great Concavity is now on Instagram. And we can Instagram a picture of you with There you go. And that'll be that'll be wonderful.
2: If if they allow pictures. I haven't been there in a long time. I know Oh yeah, that's the, true. The Kimball allows photos. Have you been there lately, Robin? Do they allow photos there?
1: Yeah, but I don't know if it was because I was there with my parents and it was my drawing or, or like, <laughs> I think they might have just been being nice to me about it. But uh, yeah, like, put me on the phone and we'll make sure you can get a selfie oh, with it.
2: <laughs> I, I love the drawing. I, I can't wait to see it. I know a lot of your work is like really huge. And I, I want to ask you a little bit about that before we uh, sign off today. I want to ask you about like the form factor. Like what what is the, the thinking behind that?
1: Yeah, do your thing. Whatever you guys want to know, in any way, I am here for you today. Well, we're just kind of (laughs) of
2: jumping in. We're kind of coming at it sideways here. So I I want to back up and say the first time that I heard about Robin O'Neill was in The Believer, and I subscribed to The Believer for years, going back to issue number one. And I always loved their interviews. They had an interview in 2004 with David Foster Wallace, Dave Mm -hmm. Eggers. Right. They had an interview in 2008 with Robin O'Neill, and and it really didn't do justice to it without showing some of your work in there, though. There was, like, not much visuals in that interview, so I went and looked it up, and I was blown away because it was, like, pencil drawings, right? That's your your main material, right, is a graphite
0: pencil. Graphite on paper.
1: Yeah, that's pretty much it until very, very recently. It's all yeah. been a, a mechanical pencil, a .5 and a .3 on paper, and that's it. So even the big ones are mm. all really obsessively made. And yeah, really hard to reproduce, and so it's hard to get that from any reproduction, really. I have a, a, Every artist has that difficulty of really presenting their work when someone's not in front of it, but... Uh, it's to different in different degrees and I think I my work really is, is especially challenging to really see properly on a little I mean like a little three inch JPEG like you're seeing on your computer yeah. compared to the big thing is a whole different thing. Not that I'm complaining. I mean either way, it's fine, but it's it, it is kind of it's hard for me to um, explain it without people seeing it sometimes.
0: Yeah well, that's, that's so how funny. Long, how long would that take you Robin like a piece that large? What's kind of your uh, timeline?
1: Let's see, those those pieces around that time that were that big took about, I would say four, five, six months. That one probably oh. about five, five months, I think, yeah.
0: And that's like 40 hour work week kind of thing?
1: Oh, a lot more a- than that. 80, <laughs> 80,
0: <Wow>. 90, 200. <laughs>
1: Yeah, there was wow. a w- there was a long time in my life that I didn't I really didn't do anything but work, and it was usually eighteen hour days for about tw- yeah for about twelve years there, and I really was isolating in a really bad way, uh, mm. which is what made that work possible. But now, mm. as a more kind of healthy. Human, I see that as a problem, but that is what it was. I was just a real mess and all I did was draw and never took days off. So I'm kind of getting back into that, which scares me. Uh, yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. And listening but that's, to like okay. super
0: dark minimalism, like Max Richter <laughs> and stuff like that.
1: <laughs> exactly. No, you would think one would think that's what I would be doing. I do that, but when I'm making these drawings, what I do is obsessively watch like Beverly Hills 90210, Dawson's Creek, Felicity, <laughs> Howard Stern Show. So the exact Opposite of what my work is. Yeah. Is more content. I- yeah there you go so that's kind of what you're asking about and that will that'll be a good link when we start talking about david foster wallace and infinite jest and mash like that's a big part of that's how i work it's i wouldn't have made any of these if it weren't for my obsession with tv i really do mean that
0: (laughs) and then also too like a lot of your older instagram stuff is about oprah like you photoshop yourself into (laughs) images with oprah and i kind of (laughs) wanted to ask you about that because it's so funny (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> like you're a, you're a baby that's uh, that Oprah is holding and stuff like that?
1: Oh, yeah. I love that one. Yeah, there was a why. I don't know why I haven't done that lately. You know, when I was a kid, I wrote to Oprah when she was more um, not. Well, when she wasn't taken as seriously, I wrote to Harpo Studios. I have a postcard returned from her to prove it. And not from her personally, but from Harpo Studios where I've always kind of been obsessed with her in a weird kind of love-hate way, even when I, this was, I was in seventh grade when I wrote to her, and I wanted to be on, and you guys are going to die, I wanted to be on because I had, I wanted to be on a program where they would do something about kids who are obsessed with things, and at that time, I was obsessed with Leonardo DiCaprio on Growing Pains. Naturally.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Who, Who wouldn't be?
1: I know, but I really had printed out like all of these photos, not printed out, I had stolen from the grocery store like teen magazines all these photos of him and put them in a binder and like laminated them and all this stuff. And then I would also uh, put photos of him on top of photos of me. So I would put I would cut out his head and put it on like my brother's head. <laughs> and so I wanted to be on there about my obsession because I actually back then I even knew that... Um, my obsessive ways were probably problematic, and I think it was my way of reaching out for help, but I don't know why it was writing to Oprah. So, anyway, <laughs> for forever, I was so I sort of had this link to Oprah because of that, and I don't know why I just made up this story visually on Instagram that I had kind of been. Maybe, like, I thought I was her girlfriend. It was very romantic, some of it. Like, sometimes I was moving out of her house. Just based, <laughs> <laughs> based on whatever photos I had of me, I would stick Oprah in there or vice versa. So, anyway, thank you for that. I hope that explains it a little bit. <laughs> that's
0: radical. Thank you. Yeah, <laughs> You're welcome. Good. Robin, I don't know if you remember this, but I sent you an email in 2011 Uh, just asking about inquiring about prints and how to get prints of your work and then we went back and forth a little bit talking about other contemporary artists like Jacob McGraw and John Rapalye and Frank Magnata, Walton Ford we talked about a few other people Um, and it's so exciting to me that we get to have you on here and you just happen to be a big David Foster Wallace fan because I hold you to be one of my favorite artists of all time so this is this is fantastic.
1: Oh, wow. Thank you. It's so funny because I hadn't remembered that until ver- until this week preparing when I was looking for your email. <laughs> yeah. And then I go, oh, yeah, we totally had that talk a long ass time ago. Yeah, it so was it's- like four the- years ago. Yeah, that makes me so happy. I Mm. know. And we've gotten closer on Twitter and Instagram and stuff throughout the years. But that, yeah, yeah, no, I'll be honest, it slipped my mind until recently. But then I remember it all came back. I just didn't put you as that same person I was talking to. Yeah, connecting
0: the
2: dots now. It's all coming together. (laughs) And Robin, didn't, didn't you used to live in Austin?
1: I didn't, but I lived in Houston for over, I think over a decade. So I never lived in Austin, but I've spent a lot of time there and in San Antonio. Most of my adult life was in Texas. A lot of
2: people come and go throughout Texas, but it's rare to meet someone who grew up here and then left and is successful.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's funny. You know how we have that connection? That's funny, because this will lead us right into how I got into David Foster Wallace and why I've forever been obsessed. (laughs) My best friend, I call him Eric, but his official writer name is E. Tyler Lindvall, and he's my reason for getting into David Foster Wallace. He's taught me a lot about um, different writers, but I was sort of an asshole about contemporary literature, to be honest with you, until until Eric uh, challenged me to read Infinite Jest with him. And so we kind of did this book club from different cities when I read it, and... So I'm really indebted to him because I really only read dead writers up until that moment. For real, I'd only given it maybe I'd I think I'd only read, let's see Cormac McCarthy and maybe I read like one Donna Tartt book and that was about Uh it for anyone living. And so, Mm. I was kind of resistant to it. And I, yeah, and so I'm embarrassed about that now because this opened the door for me for so many writers, not only living ones, but writers that I didn't pay attention to before like, that mean a lot to me now, like Donald Barthelme. I never would have heard of if it wouldn't have been for me researching Wallace after reading. So, so that's just to give you an idea. That's kind of my uh, background with David Foster mm. Wallace. It started with Infinite Jest through my oh. friend Eric. Yeah, yeah.
0: cool. What year was that when you read that, Robin?
1: Um, I really don't know. It's been so long ago. It was right before he died, I think. So a little bit yeah. before that. Maybe a year yeah. before. Yeah.
0: Yeah, that's when I read it too.
1: Mm.
2: I have met several people that were really into classics or really into some other form of literature or art. And then reading Wallace was like an anomaly for them, but it really mm. clicked. And so like that's not the first time I've heard that story about someone who said oh i only read dead authors and then you know i read wallace and it was the first really contemporary guy like that exact story i've heard (laughs) multiple times from other Hmm. people so that's very interesting to me that it keeps coming up like maybe there's something about his writing that resonates with people who are used to hearing that yeah. yeah,
1: I'd be interested if anyone's writ I mean anyone's written about that or probably will hopefully because that that's interesting. I had no idea that was uh common. And so thank you Matt for telling me that. I I've always been too embarrassed to admit it publicly, but that is the truth. So <laughs>
2: <laughs> Now, I could name several other people who I have heard the same story from and I you know, I haven't given it much credence other than to think that you know, Wallace himself was extremely well read and was very conscious of writing in certain traditions and trying to, you know, what every writer wants to do is to be uh, lasting and universal and, and have their work not feel dated. And it's Wallace talks about this in several places, very hard to do um, and still feel relevant to the times. And I think he kind of does both, and that's why it appeals to people who, you know, read contemporary literature and people who don't read contemporary literature.
1: Yeah, that makes total sense. That's absolutely mm-hmm. it.
2: So you were at Columbia? Wait, you were at Columbia? I missed that part.
1: No, I wasn't, but Eric, so E. Tyler Linvall, the writer who's my best friend, he was, and then I would go and visit. So I would often, um, Vladimir Nabokov was my biggest hero uh, as far as any writer goes. And so I would go and stay with in Eric's apartment in Morningside Heights and then I would just look at his bookshelves and just kind of pick whatever I didn't know about yet. So and I was also going and I kind of I think I talked about this in the believer interview but I kind of I didn't break into the New York Public Library but I lied my way into the archives in order to <laughs> touch all of the note cards of Nabokovs. So all around this time I was This was when I was just starting to realize, oh, I'm a bigger fan of writers and words and literature and poetry than I have ever been uh, um, of of artists and art. (laughs) Yeah, and I mean, I know my shit as an artist. I really do, and I do care about it. I'm not trying to diminish my love of what I do and, and the world surrounding art, but there is something about me where I just... I just don't get as obsessed as I do with writers. And so uh, I just remember that was kind of the beginning of me seeing some of David Foster Wallace's, uh, I guess his nonfiction on Eric's shelf while I was researching Nabokov for some image I was working on or something. Hmm. And um, so that's, that's how the Columbia connection
2: goes. I had a big thing on Twitter. I just have to interject this story about, I had a big thing on Twitter about how, I identified with people who pronounced Nabokov Nabokov the same way that I did. <laughs> sort of like Nabokov or something it's, like that. <laughs> no, I, I, see that's that's the steam way, and, the, and the, I, I, the I don't like that song. Right where he's like, the, he says Nabokov. I don't like that. Um, and so I, uh, you know, he himself says it, and and I think it's something closer to like. Nabokov. Yes. Like, I don't speak Russian, but <laughs> you <don't>? I, no, <laughs> good, good but I, I try, right? But, but I think that, like, people who say it the way that I had it in my brain voice, because I went years where I read this guy and never heard anyone, <laughs> like, actually pronounce it out loud. So then it was very jarring for me to hear someone pronounce it in a way that I just didn't think that was the way, like the Sting song. <laughs> and
0: so I was like, that's not the way. <laughs> that's like a uh, Jeffrey. Eugenides or Jeffrey Eugenides, you know, like no, it's
2: uh, that's Eugen. That's no question. Oh, okay, Dave. okay, on. sorry. <laughs> Come on, man. I just like on, in
0: my personal history, that's always been like a question, and my friends and I have always <laughs> talked about it, like, oh, what is it? I'm sure it's easy to find out, but you know, uh, it's got to be
2: Eugenides. But, okay, um, so I I say kind of like Nabokov, but for me, I read him in high school, like before I had read Wallace, before I had really. Uh, fallen in love with any writer except for maybe John Updike. And really, Updike and Nabokov have a big connection. And Updike was really a champion of getting Nabokov into the New Yorker in the 1950s.
1: Wow. Oh, I didn't realize that.
2: Yeah, all that to say, like, I... I identify a lot with what you're saying here about, you know, being obsessive about a writer and being especially a writer who themselves is sort of obsessed with this literary, you know, elite kind of high-minded art. Hmm. And what I loved about Nabokov is like he... He didn't give a crap about music or anything else except for literature. That was it for him. Language, literature, that was, that was what he lived for. Every bit of his life revolved around his own production of art and writing. And to me, that was like very enchanting. Oh, and, yeah.
0: What about the angle uh, that's like kind of a narcissistic temple to, to be like that obsessed with your own work? You know what? <laughs> well, well <laughs> just thinking about like in Infinite Jest, yeah. the whole the yeah. whole t- conversation between Steeply and Marath, where he's talking about like you like your temple and the things that you choose to give your life away to, and I wonder if like yeah. being that enamored with your own work is some kind of weird narcissistic oh wait
1: i gotta interject matt i'm sorry you're gonna have an artist yeah
0: (laughs) i know i have
1: to because i was going to talk about this with you guys so it's like you predicted this so i have to i have to say this about that i am riding this dangerous middle ground between exactly what matt loves about nabokov and (laughs) what and then your fear dave of this being a little too precious and a little too self-obsessed because um, to talk about myself just very briefly, we've already gotten a sense that I was very obsessed with my own work for a long, long time, and then I, for various reasons that were all based in tragedy, really had to like pull back from that, and the world basically showed me that that was dangerous and that it was going to kill me if I didn't watch out, and so that part, and around, it, it was later after I read Infinite Jest that I really made sense of that, but I remember it, uh, it kind of being this knife to the heart when I read that stuff between Steeply and Marath, Where, and it, and I even have memorized it. I know it's, I mean, kind of briefly, this is paraphrasing, but probably close, but our attachments are our temple, what we worship, what we give ourselves to, what we invest with faith, and attachments are of great seriousness. Choose your attachments carefully. Choose your temple of fanaticism with great care. I mean, that is about, that to me, for anyone, with any uh, serious addiction or obsession or just these compulsive behaviors in life it is it can be such a beautiful thing, and it is what gets the job done in a lot of ways, i mean even in love even in in every way but it it, it, it can also taken to an extreme can ruin you and that 's really what infinite i mean that 's one of the major themes throughout infinite jest in all sorts of ways, so I guess I suppose for me reading that passage in particular when I read it and then what we're talking about with Nabokov I question this all the time about artists like I I get I even got worked up last night I went to this haunted house at Universal Studios and we were at Guillermo (laughs) Guillermo del Toro has some new movie that I've never seen but and I don't want to but I was at the Haunted House version of whatever this new movie is, and my friend was explaining that Guillermo del Toro, all he cares about is movies, and that's his biggest love, and he's the biggest movie fan, and he's obsessed. And I found myself recognizing me five years ago being really into that and wanting to hear it, and then me now wanting to pull the, like, stop, like, push the brakes a bit and say, that's dangerous. That's not right. And mm. I can only imagine how torturous that is for him, even though it may seem like all fun and games. I don't know if I'm even getting off on a tangent here, but does any of this make sense? Because I could, I could. Well, yeah. that's,
2: that's sort of what he's saying. And this is water, right? So in this is water, The the commencement speech, he says. You know, something about if you worship money and things, if that's where you get, you know, your meaning out of life, you'll never have enough. If you worship this other thing, you know, if you worship beauty and sexual allure, you'll always feel ugly, you know, you'll die a million deaths. All Mm. that stuff is him saying, don't worship anything except a higher being. And that's really where I think me and Wallace personally, like as a philosophy, part ways. Mm. And that I disagree with that. And I think that that is not the definition of atheism because he says in the day-to-day trenches of adult life there's, there's no, no such, such thing, thing as atheism yeah. yeah and it says everyone worships and i say well worshiping is different than a belief in a higher power and so for me that's like i'm not an addict like i don't i part ways with him on this discussion and that i think that you can tap real meaning in life from something that is is not centered out of a higher power and he says no it has to be and I, like I say, for me, that's that's a little bit different. And I think there are a lot of other artists and writers that would be on my side of that equation. Oh, sure. Whereas his, right. his side of the equation is that art is essentially, at the end of the day, is empty.
1: Oh, and yeah, it, you're it right. It's not
2: fulfilling. And I, dis, I like I say, I disagree with that. And I think that you know what infinite justice is about sadness. It's about the loss of that feeling of we relied on a higher power for all these millennia. And now that's gone. Mm -hmm. And that this generation that was, you know, agnostic and then atheist and is really just kind of drifting Mm -hmm. that they are missing that piece. And I, like I say, I disagree with the root cause of it, but I think that it is worth reconsidering pretty much every bit of your core beliefs. Like here, I don't know, a few minutes into this podcast, we're talking about the meaning of life. That's pretty <laughs> this amazing. This happened last week too, man. Let's do it. Yeah, I mean, not much Not much art will like prompt you to do that. Yeah. So.
0: yeah, but Wallace also talks about art being able to get us to those transcendent places, right? Like in the way that deep and meaningful human relationships can and that uh, in the way that sex can sometimes, that art has this capacity to break, not that art is empty, uh, but it can do these really serious things things to us emotionally and it can and it can perform these effective things uh that get us to oh i I agree david i
2: i think that all the other stuff that i'm saying is like way more didactic (laughs) than the actual literature like (laughs) in 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 infinite jest and like in his stories i think they're much more subtle and complex yeah and maybe maybe i'm being unfair to you know uh, the wallace philosophy by pulling in the commencement speech and a lot of people
0: would argue that right yeah yeah, there's well, a lot of backlash to that speech.
1: Yeah, and I, you know, I don't know. I mean, I appreciate hearing your thoughts on that and it actually puts it in. I haven't, even, I haven't thought about that speech in a while and I'm just thinking, I'm, I've been really thinking about Infinite Jest lately and especially preparing to talk to you guys, just thinking about what was it that changed things for me and it has a lot to do with this attachments and uh, fanaticism and and the mm-hmm. mash, everything with, it's Steepley's father who's obsessed with mash, right? I just want to make sure that because it's been a while
2: yeah is, I th- is it not joelle van dyne's father
1: god i don't no i don't think it's her no because
0: he's obsessed with her right like he has a sexual fetish about yeah about okay her. okay yeah i think it's steeply yeah i was just yeah. looking at this the other day
1: well okay so i just didn't remember whose father was obsessed with mash but i i just want so again about all of this i do think often at least in wallace's fiction these obsessions do tend to to cause uh, the world to crumble around people. And so that's what I'm kind of thinking about with this. And I think when I read it, I'm so obsessive. And I am so... Also, the other thing I love about Wallace is his uh, TV... Anything he writes about TV or talks about TV is something that... kind of kicks me in the face a little bit because it's so how I am too I have to put it aside or I just that's all I'll do just like him but this thing about whoever's father it is being obsessed with MASH it really did a number on me and called into question so much about how I ran my life and really how Mm -hmm. I allowed my brain to run me as both a human as an artist and as an artist and so Ever since reading about, well, reading *Infinite Jest* as a whole, and in particular this attachments thing and *Mash*, it has a, it really has had a massive impact on how I treat my day-to-day life. Which I know that sounds really dorky to talk about how I changed as a result, but it I really put each moment kind of into question because I I just get so severely preoccupied with things and people, whatever it is, and it changes from you know month to month, and so. I don't know, I just started to watch myself as a result of the destruction that's caused by all of the obsessions in Infinite Jest in particular, and I can honestly say that I ended up being better as a person, as an artist, after reading Infinite Jest a couple of times, and and I don't know, it is specifically because of that. That's not the only reason I love Wallace, of course, and it's not my only reason for reading it, but... Um, I don't know. I'm just more thoughtful because of David mm. Foster Wallace and because of his interviews in Infinite Jest. Jeff- if, if that makes any sense,
0: it does. Yeah. So for you, Infinite Jest was kind of like a mirror in some ways mm, that Wallace is yeah. saying, like, here's here's w- what things really look like. It when you, w- when you dig in. It
1: it was and it yeah I guess it was a mirror, but it was also a magnifying glass on the kind of. Uh, obsession with details and it just hmm. i i don't know if i don't know if i'm saying it right a mirror is probably a better way to say it yeah i, I mean i saw myself in way too many characters it was and i'm sure <laughs> i'm sure a lot of us do or maybe some of us don't at all and those are the lucky ones maybe i don't know uh did you,
0: did you see yourself in randy lens by any chance
2: <laughs> let's
0: let's hope not
1: no what <laughs> not at all
2: <laughs> but if you know if we could go back to this tv thing right quick because I, I struggle with this and i think the technology of it has gotten better you know with netflix and there's shows that are out where you can watch the whole you can just binge watch oh, yeah. in a way that you could not do even 10 years ago mm. yeah and i i struggle with this now because I have small kids. I don't get out to the movies very often. I don't have a lot of free time to sit and watch TV. And I try to spend that time reading books most of the time. But that sort of alienates me from a lot of the popular culture where even really smart people are saying like, oh, you should really watch this show and watch this other show and watch this other show. And there's just like an infinite amount of uh you know popular entertainment that is actually really well done that i feel that's you know i should be watching just to stay up on stuff and then it feels like an obligation to keep up with it um, and you know it's not that way with literature. Even with something like Elena Ferrante, have either one of you read the Elena Ferrante books? Mm-mm. No. Like, that was like that was a big sensation in publishing the past year or two. Or the Knausgard books. Have you read the Knausgard? No. I'm weird. Oh. I'm. Right. I
1: don't. I'm weirdly so. don't want to. I don't know what my problem is. I'm really resistant. <laughs> so, it's weird.
2: No, but it's just it's just an example of like it's a much lower bar to entry of watching you know Breaking Bad or mm-hmm. Mad Men or game of thrones yeah it's much more say oh well i had two hours to kill and i went and watched you know two episodes and now i'm caught up Mm -hmm. it's like you can't do that with these books even if they're sensation and they're a big deal and a lot of people you know in new york are talking about them in my day-to-day life that's not really what is dominating the culture it's tv it's still tv and movies Yeah. yeah and so i think that's what wallace is tapping into there with Like the ability to binge watch things, the ability to like obsess over them is it's a higher quotient as compared to, you know, literature. Is it, is it really in danger? And I think maybe a little bit, it is. Yeah,
1: no, I totally agree. And that's, I mean, this is also, I just keep admitting embarrassing things, but when I was reading Infinite Jest, there was a Real Housewives of something on that I was really invested in. And (laughs) I, and then a lot of my friends were talking about it. We knew all the people in it and it was kind of getting crazy. And I cannot watch any of those shows after reading Infinite Jest. Because I am a little more careful now. This is different than the things I have on on my TV when I'm drawing. I kind of have a weird thing where I I just need to hear people talking when I work, and so I'm produ- I'm being productive when I watch tv because it's like it's just what keeps me going in here but uh in my free time yeah ever since reading this book and hearing uh wallace in interviews i do notice myself being more critical of tv when i when i was and he always loved it and was critical of it and didn't he Mm -hmm. remind me you guys didn't he kind of predict i'm sure everyone predicted what would happen with tv but i remember him talking about how much crazier it's going to get and even with like um porn or something like he was what is that that i'm remembering
2: yeah. vr porn i mean he he predicted that virtual reality porn which really hasn't become a thing yet or mainstream like maybe oculus rift will
0: <laughs> uh, push that farther down <laughs> the line like, yeah. i think
2: i think we haven't seen the full flower of his predictions yet right. yeah. well he
0: kind of predicted skype too right the whole video phony thing
1: yeah. Yeah, the, the,
2: that part in Infinite Jest. There's also a thing about um, in the local newspaper there in Bloomington Normal, Pantograph. Oh, yeah. There was, a, there was an article about how he was famous for um, leaving a TV out on the curb with the trash, like a fully functioning working <laughs> television. And that he would binge on the TV and, and he would you know, get it. Yeah, he would get a new book deal and go and buy an, you know two <laughs> or $300 TV and just watch it 24-7. <laughs> and then a few weeks later, it would be out on the curb. And his neighbors like noticed it enough. Apparently, it somehow made its way to the local newspaper. Like, oh, that's the guy who's
0: always got a TV <laughs> out on the curb. Like, like once amazing. a month or something.
1: <laughs> I love funny. it.
0: That's real funny.
1: And I want to say about TV, back to that, uh, the only things I watch, uh, my friends are so frustrated with me because I've not even seen Breaking Bad yet. All I watch is I watch and rewatch Forensic Files, Unsolved Mysteries, Dawson's Creek, Felicity, and (laughs) Beverly Hills 90210 and Gilmore Girls, and that's it. So, is that where
0: they like cell phones on TV hashtag thing comes from that you yeah. post about?
1: <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> that's my favorite hashtag I've created for sure. Oh, yeah. Tight. I love seeing, uh, uh, yeah, really weird, scary, uh, cell phones are always on the crime shows. So I like crime shows. I like it either as dark as possible for TV shows or just ridiculous teenage dramas. So that, but, oh, yeah. but seriously, Matt, continue doing what you're doing. You're doing a good thing. You don't need to watch more TV <laughs> oh. shows. Just ignore all of us. Yeah.
2: <laughs> no, I'm gonna I'm gonna step my game up someday. When 20 years from now I catch up, but, um, you know we haven't even really talked about Robin's podcast yet. Yeah, I just yeah. realized we haven't oh. even talked about you you reading stuff. And I've you know I've got to ask you your impulse behind that of just saying I, you're gonna read stuff into a <laughs> microphone and record it.
0: And I want to put this out there, like where did that come set from? Set to like a set to like a sexy R&B kind of beat in the back.
1: Oh my it's, god, it's right
0: on. I Love it. So uh, wait before
2: before you answer i have to say Anyone listening, Robin's podcast is called "Me Reading Stuff." If you go on iTunes, you can find it under "Me Reading Stuff." <laughs> Thank you, Robin O'Neill. Thank
1: you. Yes. <laughs> Plug okay. It. I'm so glad that you plugged it. I've never had more fun doing anything than this podcast for real. Me read- <laughs> So as long as I've had an, here's how it started. As long as I've had an iPhone, uh, which I got the first generation when they first came out, and I and always they had the voice memos thing on there. So I immediately started using the voice memos thing as a way to communicate with people because often I don't have the time to write a good long email response to someone communicating with me because if I'm normally if I'm awake my hands need to be drawing all the time like I don't need to be typing I really need to use these hands to draw and so I was always frustrated and getting behind on emails and so uh, for me I just started to record myself while I drew so my emails would be just audio of me talking back to people uh, while I was being productive in the studio so that's also kind of a part of why I'm so comfortable recording my own voice like I do for the, for, <laughs> for me reading stuff in these sort of like monological ways. This yeah. is how I've always spoken to people. So that and I do have a long standing love of the radio format. I don't want to get into it too much but I was on the Howard Stern show once. I don't know if you guys know that and are just trying yeah. to what? Yeah, I was going to bring that up. Yeah, I know. I didn't know. Most people are too afraid to bring it up with me because they're like, I don't know if she wants to bring this up. But anyway, so long story short, one Saturday morning this summer, I had read a Wallace Stevens poem called The Man on the Dump while i was just like drinking coffee eating breakfast and i just broke down so i had a full on moment where i couldn't st- I-, I couldn't stop crying over this poem for some reason and without going into too many details that morning i just decided out of nowhere to start a podcast because i wanted to share that poem with mm. the world somehow so that's what i did but i didn't know what i was doing because i'm not technological at all so i was i just searched like how to do a podcast which brought me to Potomac. And then I, it said, what is the name of your podcast? And I just wrote in as a joke, <laughs> me reading stuff, kind of being funny. And then I thought, oh, well, I can always change that if I want to down the line. But pretty quickly, I realized it was the perfect, it was the ideal name for what I'm doing. And it mimics my podcast, like clumsiness and lack of sophistication and directness. So I do love my title. That's probably my favorite thing about it. So that's kind of how it started. Does that make sense?
2: <laughs> yeah. I mean, do, do you read stuff that you're just, it, does it correspond to your everyday life or are you now looking for stuff to put on the podcast?
1: You know, I had had a collection of, you know, well, every time I read any book, I have a pencil inside of it and I do a very elaborate note-taking things and then I transcribe every everything I highlight with a pencil into um, my computer. So I always have any passages that I love, I have them easily accessible in my mm. Computer And so I have probably a backlog that if I did this like I do twice a week on the podcast, I will never run out if I do this. Wow. into uh, But that being said, I also am open. You know, sometimes people will send me things that I either like or don't like. Uh, and so it started and I'm learning a lot more about poetry because of the podcast. So I. I didn't I don't know a great deal about poetry. I know what I like and I've also I'm like self-taught when it comes to literature and poetry at all. So I you know, I never really took a lot of classes. This is just me kind of gravitating towards what I love. So but usually in the morning when I record, I honestly just like look at whatever I just read or I'll just search and remember something on my computer that I loved from some book I read or something. So that's kind of how I do it, really really yeah. casually and naturally.
0: Cool. And you recently just read a Wallace short story from brief interviews with hideous men. A radically condensed history of post-industrial life. How was the response to that?
1: Yeah, it was really great, and I wish yeah. I could read more David Foster Wallace on there. But again, it's only because he <laughs> is normally not that brief and concise, so concise. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and so it was wonderful. And the, the the crazy part about that is I've been on Twitter for quite a while, and Twitter is my favorite social media uh, form for sure. And I got the most. I've never had so many Twitter like retweets and likes as I did. When I posted uh, just I took a photo of the page of a radically condensed history of post industrial life, and everyone i don 't know people really responded to it, and that last line, one never knew after all, now did one, now did one, now did one i, <laughs> I it's like it's it's a tattooed inside of my heart it really is it 's just one of the most beautiful moments that i 've ever read. I really do mean that, so i i 'm really close to that piece. I love that piece, and people really liked it, so that was nice
0: cool.
2: Yeah, I was thinking about that piece this weekend because I went to three Halloween parties and they really prey on your ability to have like normal human social interactions. (laughs) And, and, you know, that's what that story is really about. And like, it's like a hundred words long, but it's really about like, how do you come across as like, Oh, I'm a cool, interesting person. But I don't want you to think that I'm trying to be a cool, interesting person. And like, it's just such a social minefield to have any basic, you know, human interaction with someone. And it usually ends badly if both people are that self-aware. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, and to me, it's like a struggle to fight against that kind of self-awareness. Like, don't be too self-aware. Yeah. I, I mean, what's, what's your take on that story?
1: Yeah, I mean, for me, it is like welcome to my experience talking to humans. As much <laughs> as I seem, as much as I seem real, like because I, I am pretty good with people, but internally, and I'm getting better as I get older. But I was so obsessed with how I seemed to everyone for so long that when I first read this short story, it it just. It just killed me, and it summed it all up. Where you're just all your, and you're, and also the part about uh, trying to preserve good relations at all times. That's the thing too that I connected with. Is and something I kind of see in Wallace in his interviews is I've always said there's a Midwestern thing in this country about like I I have this m- kind of moral obligation to be pleasant all the time when I'm around people, and I don't know if Wallace ever really talked about it, but I sensed it about him too, and a lot of people. I mean, anyone actually. Actually, Canadians. By the oh, way, yeah. you guys are that way as well. Yeah, we
0: rock, we rock that vibe pretty hard.
1: <laughs> you really do. And so maybe <laughs> it's just maybe it's just humanity, and I'm yeah. putting it into geographical <laughs> regions. But I, I just, and this is, I don't know. It really stung me when I first read it, and it still does every time I do because I ju- All I can tell you is that it's so difficult for me to truly be myself, and now not now in life, not because. I'm so insecure because I am trying to build myself up a little bit more in those ways and uh, and not be so focused on myself actually, but because I want things to be okay when I'm out with people and I'm so focused on that, that I can't just be cool or natural, you know, I just can't. And so it's just, I don't know. That's a really beautiful. Well,
2: that that problem of preserving human like interactions and like preserving like normal day-to-day civilization in a way uh, you know, I'm seeing it with raising kids. They don't have that built in. <laughs> right? yeah. that, is, that is not right. hardwired. It's not something you're born with. And in fact, your parents are horrified that you don't have that built in. And that <laughs> it's something your parents just beat into you. And really, I, I'm struggling with trying to teach my kids manners right now because i feel like i've totally slacked on it and it's not just but it's not just manners it's almost like sublimation right it's like if you think someone's giving you a bad piece of food don't tell them it's bad like lie about it and like that's a good case to like you have to teach a kid that the kid doesn't know that normally and it seems really counterintuitive to the kid to preserve these relations like it's important i i still stick by it i'm not i don't consider myself midwestern or canadian or whatever but like i still think it's you know? super important to just like n- that's what civilization is built
0: on you know
2: we can't we can't throw that by the wayside built on so. white
0: lies polite white lies
2: absolutely and it's really hard to teach a kid that when you've t-
0: tried to teach them you know, not to leaders, lie yeah, be yourself, don't <laughs> lie. So it's like, okay, you can you can lie if you're lying to Nazis, you know, if they're harboring <laughs> people in your house. You can uh, lie if someone asks you how the food tastes if you're at their house for dinner. And that's, that's like harmless. really the only two times when it's cool to lie, really, right?
1: Yeah It's
2: hard for an you know an eight, nine, ten year old to grasp
0: that. But yeah. Y- Situational yes. ethics. Yes. It's okay to even yeah. if
2: you don't like something. If you don't like someone say thank you and smile and shake their hand and walk away like that's important and a lot of adults are still like opposed to that like oh he's a republican you know f him and yeah i i, I think that maybe we've lost a little bit of that just maybe it's slacker parents like me are
0: part of the problem that's the only problem i think <laughs> just kidding
1: Yeah. Oh, I'm glad to hear. I mean, I'm sorry because that is a real struggle. I mean, it makes sense. By the way, I recently learned this phrase that I try to think of when I have to say the difficult thing. You know, there are times in adulthood where you really do just have to say, the hard thing. And, and I used to lie, I'll be honest, for years, I would just lie my way out of not having to do the hard thing. And now I know, say what you mean, mean what you say, just don't be mean when you say it. And (laughs) when I have those little moments, and so I don't know, I think a little kid could understand that too, because there are times maybe not as much when you're a kid. But anyway, that's my new way of trying to, yeah, it really works for me because, uh, yeah, I have to pull that out more often than I'd like. And I, I don't want to keep retreating in life either. And that goes for going out in the world and experiencing life and having conversations. All of that I hid from for so long because of all of these, uh, you know, all of this uh, brain activity stuff that's really in a radically condensed history of postmodern life. So I'm glad you guys uh, are into it as well. That's a great story.
2: Well, and this gets to a question I I wanted to ask you, and maybe this is, my last question for you but in terms of you know you're an artist you have a national profile you've had tons of uh, shows a
0: wikipedia page
2: (laughs) you're 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 a public figure in a way and you know how do you my question for you is how do you handle the criticism of random people that you know, you want to read your reviews or maybe you don't want to read your reviews because there's these people that just say mean things or they attack you. How do you handle that?
1: Yeah. You know, it's gotten, I used to hide away from all social media because it was so hard on me and I would go, I would just go dark and I would, and I never had my name attached to anything online. I never would speak out. And then, now, I really am 100% okay with people not liking me. I am not for everybody. I have a very particular, loud type of personality, and I will just accept. And you know, me now not caring as much has brought the right people into my life, whereas before when I was hiding out and kind of not wanting to deal with the real me and not wanting to accept that people didn't like me and my work and my personality, I did attract the wrong people then into my life. Now that I'm just kind of like balls to the wall, like I am who I am. It's totally fine. And then I just block people who start being rude to me and it's no big deal. But, and I internally, I'm just so much tougher and I've really been through the ringer as an artist, uh, throughout the years, I've had all sorts of bad shit happen to me. And, And I've also caused a bunch of it. And so I think I have a, I'll be honest, I'm glad you asked me, Matt. I think I am extremely healthy in that way now. And I didn't used to be, so I'm kind of, I guess I'm giving myself a pat on the back. I've gotten really good at just being, I don't know, just owning who I am, which is really difficult. But I'm finally there, I think. Mm.
2: Oh, thank oh. you for that. I'm really interested just in the way that people who are public figures handle that. you know, do you ignore things or does it you know increase your positivity levels or your confidence and like you, it sounds like you have a really healthy attitude about it, but i'm I'm really curious because I think that it's changing a lot now with things like Twitter and you know Amazon reviews and people that are just random people. You can have a direct interaction. With you know a creator or artist that in a way you couldn't in you know previous era, yeah. so I, yeah. I think it's a very interesting question.
1: Well thank you and really quick I know we're probably getting out of time but that was part of why I did me reading stuff the podcast is because I started to think I really just want to accept who I am and what I like and every one of my artist friends and even writer friends are like I can't believe you're not scared about what people will think about what you read and they they're going to criticize the stuff you like and all this and I I just don't care at all. Like, it, it, it is what it is. I like what I like. I make what I make. And so I just think we all have to just continue to build up our core if we really want to be out there like this. Uh, and if we're not, I mean, people are just cruel, and people are cruel to me all the time. Like, I just, and I get fooled a lot. Like, I'll follow someone back, and then they'll private message me some asshole comment. And wow. <laughs> I'm just like, oh, wow. Man. I know. So sometimes, I mean, don't get me wrong, I can get down about it, but I usually realize how stupid it is. And also, we all need to have a sense of humor. And so, like, that's the main thing, is yes. that I I have a really... Thank God I would not be alive still if it weren't for the fact that I'm able to laugh at all this shit. Like I just (laughs) no matter how down I've been in my life, I laugh really hard about something every day. So I think that's part of it, too.
2: Yeah, I think a lot of people I admire just like don't take themselves too seriously. You know, you'd be able to laugh it off a little bit
0: and just say whatever your own way.
1: Yeah, that's it.
0: Matt are you asking about this because like your public profile as a result of this podcast this has just exploded? <laughs> no, in the last, no, like- no, 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 no. <laughs> this is this is more like I could bring this back
2: to David Foster Wallace level because I think he also had this like you were saying this Midwestern politeness where even people he knew that were going to trash him later or be mean to him he was unfailingly polite to them mm-hmm. up front. And he didn't read a lot of his reviews and he didn't go online and, you know, join social media back in 2008. I mean, I think a lot of it was he was struggling with reviews. I mean, I'm just relating it back to Wallace.
1: Yeah, yeah, Yeah,
0: no, that's true. So speaking of that, Robin, you've mentioned you've mentioned Infinite Jest a lot and you've mentioned brief interviews. Are there any other of his pieces that particularly resonate with you?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think... What is it actually called? Uh, a supposedly fun thing I'll never do again? Is that the official title of the cruise ship piece? Uh, I yeah. never know. I get oh, it's confused. It's not the
0: original title. It's okay. Shipping Out. Shipping Out. Shipping Out, Let's that's it. Want, yeah.
1: Shipping Out, uh, which I read after Infinite... Again, I read everything after Infinite Jest. Yeah, me too. Yeah, Shipping Out really is on the top of my list. Um, yeah. What, what else? Let, let me think. Oh, the... Um, what was it the state fair piece also that yeah. that that Get, really gets getting away me.
0: from pretty much being already already from it all or something like that
1: <laughs> yeah you got it <laughs> thank Sweet. you thank god for you too i know like i did obviously did not prepare as well as i thought i did um
2: <laughs> it was called ticket to the fair and harper's harper's called it ticket to the fair Oh, yeah. There
1: you go. You got it. And really, I read brief interviews with hideous men. I mean, the entire book. I read all of those quite often. So oh, yeah. yeah, I just really love that. But Infinite Jest is number one. So yeah, I, it kind of has yeah. to be here. Yeah, it really mm-hmm. does. And I recently read The Pale King finally. I, it, I took my sweet ass time on that one, but, <laughs> uh, and I really got a lot from that too. And I, yeah. I have, you know, I know that would be a whole other podcast, but uh, mm-hmm. yeah, so I really got into that as well.
0: Cool. This is kind of an, like an obtuse question, maybe, but like, is there any way in which you think that Wallace's work has influenced your art at all or your process
1: um, in doing work? You know, no the only thing is kind of it's hard for me well okay here's the deal with me the way influences hit me are never direct and so Mm -hmm. anything that inspires me i'm sort of affected uh it's almost like those things become clouds that are floating above my head and they i like kind of rain down on me when i need the rain or something it's very weird how it works with me so Yes, but not in any way that would make any uh, sort of verbal sense. Does that mm-hmm. make sense yeah, at all? Yeah,
0: yeah, totally.
1: Okay, mm-hmm. okay. So I know that's a t- kind of a terrible answer, but <laughs> it's a really ge- it's a genuine it's a yeah. genuine answer. So like, no, Hal and Mario in Canzona would never like show up in one of my drawings, but. Yeah. In a weird way, the whole book is there, and also just the kind of dystopian nature of these uh, of his fiction. Yeah, kind of. I guess it's sort of a part of it, and um, I don't know. So that's a good question,
0: but yeah, I don't. There's yeah. something like eschatological about a lot of his writing, and and I see that in your work too, right? Yeah. Just the the end (laughs) as kind of just a topic.
1: Absolutely. And I was really into the nitty-gritty of that for a while with my work, and now it's more kind of like what the world would look like if everything really was ruined, and that's what I'm dealing with now in my studio. So it's sort of this next step. You guys probably would hate the new work, by the way. My new work looks nothing like what you're used to, so I'm kind of terrified about that, to be honest with you. No, the
0: new work's great. It, it is very you. different. Like it's, it's totally different format, but it's in color. There's color. No.
1: Yeah. Which there's is, color. I'm looking cool. at some primary colors right now that you haven't <laughs> seen yet. And I'm mortified myself. So I don't know. <laughs>
0: <That's> <laughs> we'll cool. see.
1: We'll see how this will go over. <laughs> yeah. Nice.
0: When I asked you that question, I wasn't expecting you to say like, oh yeah, you know, like all the, all the people in uh, athletic <laughs> wear, those are all ETA kids or something. <laughs> like, I wasn't expecting that, you know, but like,
1: No, I know you weren't. But, yeah, I kind (laughs) of wish I could describe it more. And that's something I'll try to do in the future because it definitely did affect... The answer, the quick answer is yes. Uh, He has deeply affected me and the way I approach my work. Mm -hmm. Um, But he's also, because of infinite jest and back to obsession, it's also caused me to back up a bit about the obsessive working, which causes my work to look different in a good way, Mm -hmm. in a way where it's not so much me just kind of being like a natural compulsive worker it's more about me being more thoughtful about what i actually want to put into my my work if that makes any sense so uh philosophically my approach to uh, image making has changed drastically because of that topic
0: very cool well i was going to
2: try to make a quick connection between you know your. Your drawings are so big, and most of the stuff that you're known for are these huge wall-sized drawings. And Wallace is known for this huge thousand-page novel, maximalism. But I read this book. I read this book by uh, Grayson Perry. Uh, Grayson Perry, the artist, uh, called "Playing to the Gallery," and he makes this argument that. He says, what is art? And he's like, well, step one, it's really fucking big. And <laughs> so he says, like, if, if you take a normal snapshot and just blow it up to like eight feet wide, you could sell that as art. <laughs> and I sort of oh, I mean,
1: It's so I great. And it's so right on. He's absolutely, I've got to read that book now because that's so true. And everyone just thinks, blow it up. And actually, as sad as it is, it works for people. So It's
0: confrontational that way, right?
1: yeah it's confrontational
2: and it's just hard to do in a home scale like you can't do that in your garage it's just like print this thing that's the size of a soccer field Uh, it's very Uh, hard to do but i mean maybe you can do it more now but it's the same with writing books like writing a thousand page novel not many people do
1: uh, yeah, I do want to say though, what you don't know is that every single one of my pieces, even the ones that are bigger than that one that you guys are using for the podcast, they've all been done in second bedrooms in my houses and apartments. So, like, I really have never had an actual studio. So you can do it. I'm here to be. <laughs> well, most
2: people don't, so they're not Robin O'Neill. Most people. There don't. you go. That's the thing.
1: <laughs> that's a good point. Maybe not. We don't want any more of me in the world. So it's probably yeah. better. Better that that's not happening. <laughs> no,
0: that's It's impossible. (laughs) Don't sell yourself short. Oh, thank you guys.
1: You you guys are making me feel better about myself as an artist today. So it's been fun Mm. to go back in time and I don't think about these drawings a lot. And uh, yeah, so I I don't know. And I wanted to say also the reason I did have to pull back from the large stuff is because the tragedy was I lost a lot of work in Hurricane Sandy. And so that's, yeah, so that's kind of... I lost a piece that took me 3 years to make uh oh, called geez. hell it got yeah and so and that was the worst of my uh, obsessive behavior so that's a whole other thing that um I've talked about on some podcasts before if anyone's interested or maybe I'll talk about it again someday in some way but uh yeah so that's why I'm also breaking up my worlds and my drawings. So just kind of a disclaimer in case people really hate what's happening next. Uh, you try losing five years of work, worth <laughs> of your work in a hurricane and you'll see how much you want to approach the same type of stuff again. Oh,
0: no <laughs> kidding. Where have you talked about that? What podcasts are you referring to?
1: Um, I talked about it a little bit on a podcast called Occasionally Awesome. Uh, that's with two comedians here in town, Kevin Christie and Nick Youssef. And I talked about, uh, God, I think that might be it, actually. I don't huh. remember. But people can find it on videos of me talking um, in, at University of Nebraska in Lincoln, too. I think I talk mm-hmm. about it there. So uh, I don't know how you do that. Just Robin O'Neill, University of Nebraska, Lincoln. And I think a video comes up. I'm pretty <laughs> sure.
0: <laughs> that, that's how Google works, I think. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I think. Actually, I don't know for a fact, but I think so.
0: <laughs> oh, very cool. Uh, do you have any final thoughts about David Foster Wallace, Robin?
1: Um as we I don't up. I don't but I did want to read one quick paragraph as an as an as a closing for me is that okay or are we getting too long
0: That's wonderful. All it. right. So Brilliant. this is
1: from towards the beginning of Infinite Jest. The true opponent, the unfolding boundary is the player himself, always and only the self out there on court to be met, fought, brought to the table to hammer out terms the competing boy on the net's other side. He is not the foe, he is more the partner in the dance. He is what the word excuse or occasion for meeting the self, as you are his occasion. Tennis's beauty's infinite roots are self-competitive. You compete with your own limits to transcend the self in imagination and execution. Disappear inside the game, break through limits, transcend, improve, win. Which is why tennis is an essentially tragic enterprise. To improve and grow as a serious junior with ambitions, you seek to vanquish and transcend the limited self whose limits make the game possible in the first place. It is tragic and sad and chaotic and lovely. All life is the same as citizens of the human state. The animating limits are within to be killed and mourned over and over again. There you go.
0: And this has been me reading stuff. That's me reading stuff.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And so cut out everything I just said about me and my new work or something to fit that in there. Because I did. The reason I wanted to read that was, again, about obsession and about ambition and about why I love that book. And I think that that is probably my favorite passage in all of Infinite Jest. So Hmm. there you go.
0: That's awesome. (laughs) Um, Do do either of you guys play tennis? Because it is so true that that section is so true about tennis. Like it's the most psychological sport. That I've ever played. Wow! And, it, and it's truly just you're playing yourself mentally, essentially.
1: Do you play golf though?
0: A little bit. I I just okay. played with my dad a couple of weeks ago for the first time in like four years, and that's that's a similar thing. Yeah.
1: Okay, I was wondering because I know golf. I don't play anything at all. I'm not physical, but I love <laughs> golf, <laughs> and I was wondering if golf intent like yeah, since you've played both, I was wondering if golf is similar.
0: Yeah, it's got a it's got a similar vibe to it. I guess I guess in golf, it's a bit more solitary than tennis because there literally is no opponent on the other side of the net or right. the tee as it were. Um, yeah. So yeah, it's, okay. v- it's very internal.
1: I like that. But yeah, no, I've never even played tennis. I wish I knew. I wish I knew. I feel like I know it intimately a little bit from Infinite Jest. Yeah, but
0: <laughs> I actually didn't have any interest in tennis until I read Infinite Jest. And then I was like, oh man, this, this game sounds pretty cool. Uh, and, then I, and then I read the Roger Federer piece by Wallace, and then I started watching and playing tennis, and then I got pretty into it, and I've been, been hitting it ever since, so wow. thanks, thanks Dave for getting me into tennis.
1: <laughs> I love that. <laughs> wow.
0: And uh, and Matt, you went as a tennis player for Halloween? I, I
2: just coincidentally happened to dress <laughs> as a tennis player for Halloween.
0: Were you uh, were you the peenester by <laughs> nah, any chance? No, nah, there was
2: really no coherency <laughs> to my outfit. Um, I had to actually borrow a tennis racket from someone that I don't own a tennis racket. Like so an old wooden one.
0: One, 70s one? Yeah, <laughs> but
2: I I was using it to play table tennis, and that was pretty fun. Uh, so that's I'm pretty great. good, I'm pretty that's good great. at ping pong. I don't know if that counts. but Yeah, it does. It,
1: that counts 100%. You're a master. That's what I'm going to say.
0: <laughs> Wallace on ping pong. I'll look for that one. Oh, uh, that'd be good that's a whole that's a whole world right there in and of itself <laughs> <laughs> well Robin thank you so much for coming on the great concavity it has been awesome talking to you
1: oh I loved it you guys thank you so much for asking me I'm com- I really am truly honored I can't thank you enough
0: oh uh, it's been a real been
2: pleasure fun. and honestly it's hard for me to like cut it off at one hour like yeah. I could have I could have easily like hung out with you all night and just chatted so
1: yeah. Me too. Well, you guys, I don't plan on dying anytime soon. So have me on again, maybe like a couple of years from now. How about that? Yeah,
2: yes. <laughs> yeah let's do it again. And uh, I will definitely follow you. If you ever end up at the Belanton or somewhere here in Austin, I will definitely try to like be a groupie.
1: <laughs> oh, I'd love that. I hope I do. <laughs> well, you guys, thank you so much. This is amazing.
0: Hey, our pleasure. Uh, thanks again, Robin. So Robin, where can people get a hold of you at on the social media things that you do?
1: Yeah, they can find me on my website, first of all, at robino'neil.com And you'll see how to spell my name there when you guys write it. So no big deal. And then on Instagram and Twitter at R-O-B-Y-N underscore O-N-E-I-L. So find me there. And then again, me reading stuff on iTunes. I would love for people to check that out too.
0: Very tight. That is great. Uh, At The Great Concavity Show, we also have some of the social media things, if you're interested in checking those out. We are at Concavity Show on Twitter and Concavity Show on Instagram. And if you want to email us, uh, we are concavityshow at gmail.com. And as usual, we want to say thank you, Robin, in person for your art. Thank you to Parquet Courts for their song, Instant Disassembly. We also want to thank a listener named Jordan Tibbett, who out of the blue after the first episode sent an email to us with show notes, an appendix for the first show and a whole transcript of everything that we said in the first episode. Uh, And so he's continuing to do that. So thank you so much, Jordan. Uh, As long as you want to keep doing that for us, we totally appreciate it. And that is great. Um, and Matt, what about uh, people on social media? How's how's your response been kind of so far with people getting in touch with us? It's
2: been good. I've been surprised that we've had people who I've never heard of before listening to the show. So that's always exciting.
0: Yeah, I know. I've been I've been pretty psyched about about you guys interacting with us. And um, I just want to say that you guys are fueling this whole project with kind of the socio-emotional currency of favorites and retweets and likes. So thanks very much for your feedback. This has been the great concavity. Thanks for listening.
2: Turn on the white noise murmur of the
0: the rock peace.
1: Peace. Oh my God. That was great. Do we get to still talk? Should I hit stop on my record?